This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor is accused of spinning and misrepresenting the truth during the COVID crisis. That's the gist of a new report in the Fort Lauderdale News and Sun Sentinel that concludes the governor deceived us about the real danger for political reasons, like when he talks about vaccines that are not available yet to divert your attention from the 19,000 fatalities and 1 million infections in Florida. The Pfizer vaccine, we think, will be the first to arrive. It has extraordinary storage requirements, and it does require two doses separated by 21 days. Florida's Division of Emergency Management will be working to distribute those vaccines when they finally become available. On today's Sunrise interview, you'll hear from Jared Moskowitz, who runs the agency. We will help coordinate the full agency response, and you know we will help assist with any logistics once we get into mass vaccination. Those vaccines would be pretty handy right now because the casualty count is surging in the Sunshine State. The health department reported 100 more fatalities Thursday and 10,870 newly confirmed cases of COVID-19. We haven't seen those sorts of numbers since the peak days of July. A federal appeals court hears the case of a Florida woman who is suing to undo the once-secret plea deal that kept child sex offender Jeffrey Epstein out of federal prison. The Justice Department says the lawsuit should be thrown out, but they apologized to Cheryl Wilde for the way prosecutors in Miami cut the deal without informing the victims. Even if the law did not require it, the United States Attorney's Office in Florida should have communicated to Ms. Wilde in a transparent and straightforward way. The court hearing was conducted by Zoom, which led to a four-minute gap when one of the judges disappeared from the screen. She was, of course, from Florida. We'll also have your calendar of political events and two stories to end with a smile. There's the Florida woman who tried to get revenge on a romantic rival by posting her name, picture, address, and phone number on a dating site and saying, come on by for sex and meth. You'll also hear the tale of a Florida man who finally knows he is not the son of William Shatner. It took him 36 years to find out. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, December 4th. Forty years ago today, British rockers Led Zeppelin announced they would be disbanding after the death of drummer John Bonham. December 4th is also the day in 1991 when the largest airline in the U.S., Pan Am, was grounded for good. This is also National Cookie Day, National Sock Day, National Dice Day, and National Package Protection Day. A blockbuster report in the Fort Lauderdale News and Sun Sentinel accuses Governor Ron DeSantis and his administration of engaging in a pattern of spin and concealment that misled the public on the gravest health threat the state has ever faced. Throughout the COVID-19 crisis in Florida, Ron DeSantis followed Donald Trump's playbook, and the Sentinel says the result is that the administration suppressed unfavorable information, dispensed dangerous misinformation, dismissed public health professionals, and promoted the views of scientific dissenters who were pretty much dismissed by the medical establishment but supported the governor's approach to the disease. The result has been the creation of a climate in Florida in which people proudly disdain masks and disparage those who use them, engage in dangerous group activities that spread the disease, and ignore information that conflicts with their political views. The attempt to distract you from bad news is called blue sky messaging, and it continues to this day. Earlier this week, the state passed the one million mark in COVID cases, but the governor never mentioned that in his latest video. He spent the whole time talking about vaccines that are not available yet. Next week, we anticipate an FDA approval for the Pfizer vaccine, and we believe the following week we'll see FDA approval for the Moderna vaccine. And as the vaccine begins to arrive, it's important to remember that there are different types of vaccines and that each vaccine has slightly different requirements. So, so far, Pfizer and Moderna are the only two companies 
that have formally applied for FDA approval, but we do expect more to follow suit. The Pfizer vaccine, we think, will be the first to arrive. It has extraordinary storage requirements, and it does require two doses separated by 21 days. So if we end up getting a certain number of doses, you have to cut that in half for a number of individuals who will be vaccinated since each person requires two doses. And that's the same for the Moderna vaccine. Now it's easier to store, it doesn't require the ultra cold storage, but it does require two doses, slightly longer separation than the Pfizer vaccine. Instead of 21 days with Pfizer, you have 28 days with Moderna. There are other vaccines on the horizon. I think one that's very promising is the one that's being manufactured by Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they have already produced this at an industrial scale. Uh, importantly, it only requires one dose and it doesn't require any type of special storage. So as we work to get the most high risk vaccinated in December and into January, you may see during the month of January an FDA approval for Johnson & Johnson, and perhaps that could start hitting uh, by the time we get into February. There would be enough produced of that to have widespread vaccination. And distributing a vaccine across a large and diverse state uh, is a big challenge, but this is a major priority for the state of Florida. The fundamental conclusion of the Sentinel story is that Governor DeSantis put politics over public health. And if you don't buy that, consider this. County health departments across the state were ordered in September to stop issuing public statements about COVID-19 until after the November election. The Sentinel story is based on interviews with more than 50 people and more than 4,000 pages of documents. The COVID surge continues in Florida. The health department reporting almost 11,000 newly confirmed cases of the disease Thursday. That's the highest number since the height of Florida's pandemic in July and increases the official total to 1,029,030 cases. That's the third highest number in the country after Texas and California. The state also reported 100 new fatalities Thursday. That increases Florida's official death count to 19,112. A federal appeals court in Atlanta hears an appeal on behalf of Cheryl Wilde, a Florida woman who was sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein when she was a teenager. She has spent the past 12 years trying to undo a non-prosecution agreement that was approved by former U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta of Miami that spared Epstein from a possible life sentence for sexual trafficking of children. Epstein may be dead, but his agreement granted immunity to several co-conspirators. Wilde wants them all to answer for what they did. Jill Steinberg represented the Justice Department at this hearing and told the judges on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals they sympathize with Wilde, but the deal should stand. Even if the law did not require it, the United States Attorney's Office in Florida should have communicated to Ms. Wilde in a transparent and straightforward way. Although we are sympathetic to Ms. Wilde and apologize to her for what happened, the statute does not authorize a district court to do what she asked for here. The government's basic defense is that prosecutors do not have to consult victims until someone is charged, and since there was a non-prosecution agreement, federal charges were never filed. Wilde's attorney, Paul Cassell, told the court that is nonsense because the Crime Victims' Rights Act applies even before charges are filed. In 2004, Congress enacted the Crime Victims' Rights Act to be a sweeping bill of rights protecting crime victims throughout the criminal justice process. The intent behind the act is well described in an amicus brief filed with this court by the congressional architects of the act, Senator Feinstein and former Senators Kyle and Hatch. As they explained, they enacted several provisions to the CDRA to ensure that courts would understand that it applies pre-charging. This hearing was conducted by Zoom video conference and the chief judge, William Pryor, tempted fate when he said this at the beginning of the hearing. 
we've had good experiences with Zoom oral arguments. Uh, one of the good things about it is that if we lose the connection, we'll know it immediately because we'll see it. Sure enough, there was a glitch. It happened when Judge Barbara Lagoa of Florida tried to ask a question. Judge Lagoa? Thank you. You're frozen. Uh, hold on. Let's stop the clock for a moment, Stephanie. Anthony? Yes, I'm trying to get the judge on the line. Thank you. Zoom works well until it doesn't. <laughs> Four minutes later, Judge Lagoa was back. I apologize. My question is not that interesting to have waited for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead and ask it. All right. Uh, what I, okay, let me compose myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is the second time the 11th Circuit has heard Wilde's case. The first time was in front of a three-judge panel that said the facts of the case were beyond scandalous, were a national disgrace, but they concluded the Epstein Agreement did not violate the Federal Crime Victims' Rights Act. Wilde appealed, asking the case be considered by all of the judges who serve on the court. Next up on Sunrise, a conversation with Florida's Master of Disaster. Under normal circumstances, Jared Moskowitz and his crew at the Division of Emergency Management would be celebrating the end of the hurricane season. These are not normal circumstances. That interview is next, right after we pause for the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. As the number of COVID-19 cases are increasing, the potential collision of COVID-19 and the flu virus could lead to a new word Floridians do not want to use, twindemic. That is why Florida Blue, the Florida Hospital Association, and the Florida Medical Association have joined forces to encourage Floridians to get their flu vaccine today. Visit floridablue.com, fha.org, or flmedical.org to learn more and support a flu-free Florida. Welcome back to the Sunrise Interview. Our guest today is Jared Moskowitz, a former state Democratic lawmaker from Broward County who was appointed by the governor to run the Florida Division of Emergency Management. He's been going nonstop for the past two years, starting with a recovery from Hurricane Michael in the Panhandle and continuing through the COVID crisis, not to mention the record hurricane season of 2020. First of all, Jared, let me say congratulations on getting through another hurricane season. So what do you get to do now at the Emergency Operations Center and the Division of Emergency Management now that we're out of this? Well, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a pandemic going on. So uh we're we're still doing what we've been doing since march uh you know when obviously the covid-19 pandemic uh you know uh you know became full blown and so we're still here at the EOC at a level 1 uh obviously uh right now we can breathe a uh sigh of relief uh from a double disaster happening meaning you know now that we're at a hurricane season you know you're talking the most active hurricane season uh, ever uh, on record uh, in history, and not one hurricane landfall in the state of Florida. And so, um, you know, our, our folks up in the Panhandle obviously got hit uh, from, uh, you know, from some of uh, Hurricane Sally, which made landfall in Alabama, but no hurricane landfalls in the state of Florida in the most active hurricane season ever, ever on record. And so, you know, that in itself is, uh, is a miracle, but we'll, uh, and, and we'll take it especially with everyone dealing uh, with COVID-19. So, you know, obviously it's, it's, uh, it's Groundhog Day here. We're continuing to do the things we do day in and day out. Uh, but obviously we're also starting to transition to vaccine deployment. Uh, and while we're excited uh, about that, uh, obviously we can't take our eye off the ball with, you know, social distancing, mitigation measures, wearing masks, helping out our nursing homes and our hospitals continue to manage the pandemic. 
Now, what is the role that the Division of Emergency Management will play in the vaccine distribution? Sure. So, look, the, the Division of Emergency Management uh, obviously is a supporting agency uh, and a coordinating agency uh, to all of the other uh, state agencies. So here, this is a, you know, a major effort between the Department of Health and ACA and the Division of Emergency Management, and we will help coordinate the full agency response, and you know, we will help assist with any logistics once we get into mass vaccination. So in the beginning, vaccinations are going to CVS and Walgreens as part of the nursing home mission and to uh, five hospitals uh, that were selected that could hold the Pfizer cold chain uh, storage. Um, and so, you know, that's in the first week of distribution. As we get into the second week, that'll open up to more hospitals. As we get into the third week, you know, we'll start setting up. Uh, I think you'll start seeing hospitals starting to set up pods. Uh, you'll see frontline workers, maybe even fire and EMS all in that beginning, uh, beginning delivery. Obviously, we want to focus on the most vulnerable among us. So that's folks in nursing homes, that's folks in our ALS, our residents in those facilities, uh, and, and obviously, you know, then obviously the, the population at 65 and older with, you know, comorbidities on major underlying conditions, which, you know, brings the worst effects of, of COVID-19. So, you know, we're here at the division, continuing to do what we do, just like we, you know, quarterback testing, we're going to help quarterback uh, uh, vaccine distribution with all of the other partners, DOH, ACA, our hospital systems. Uh, and other uh, other organizations that are going to step up and help distribute the vaccine. My understanding from the governor's video that he dropped is that the first vaccines will be available before the end of the month. But the question, I guess, is like, if you're not on the high priority list, if you're not over 65, if you're not a healthcare worker, when can the average Floridian expect that vaccines will be available? You're going to see people outside of the hospital setting and outside the nursing home setting uh, starting to get that vaccine potentially uh, as early as the first week in January. It, uh, you know, those folks will have to fit into certain categories. Again, we want to take care of the most vulnerable among us, people who are most susceptible to the significant effects of COVID-19. But as far as, you know, when the a regular person who's completely healthy with no issues and is relatively young, uh, you know, we said those will be in the months ahead. Obviously, a lot of that will, ha- will depend on, quite frankly, vaccine uh, production. Uh, if we get uh, enough vaccine, we'll open that up earlier. And so, uh, you know, that, you know, right now we have our vaccine production numbers for the month of December. We do not have it uh, for any months uh, on a go-forward basis. But we'll be ready to, to go into the mass vaccination uh, business uh, with all of our partners uh, as soon as we receive enough vaccine to do so. How is the staff at the division holding up? I mean, you've been on alert now for what you, you mentioned since March. You were great. Everything, everything is fantastic. I mean, uh, no, this is this has been wonderful. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, you know, look, we 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 have uh, you know folks that have decided to dedicate their life to emergency management. Um, you know, these are folks that put a, put aside their lives, their families, their kids, their wives, their husbands, their loved ones to come uh, and, and do this, whether it's a hurricane. Uh, or now a pandemic. Obviously, this has tested us and strained us in ways that uh, a hurricane never has. This this mission is, you know, five times the Category 5 hurricane, and it's the longest we've ever been activated at a level one. And so, uh, you know, I've tried to do things around here to help people's mental health, uh, whether that's making sure I'm giving time off, uh, but you know, I'll give you one other thing. I mean, I've left, I've, I've started to let people bring their dogs to work. 
Uh, and, you know, that sounds like a small thing, but, you know, we, I try to, since we've been stuck here at the EOC, trying to make the EOC feel more normal and not as sterile and feel more like home. Because, you know, look, in emergency management, you're not just working on today's disaster. You have to also be ready for the next disaster, some unknown that may happen. So we have to be able to walk and chew gum here. And so, look, we're tired. We're, we're, of course, we're tired. We're human. Uh, but you know what? We're, we can't complain because I got, I got families uh, out there that have lost loved ones. I got family members that have loved ones in hospitals that they can't go see, whether that's with COVID or not with COVID. Uh, I got doctors and nurses on the front lines every day, you know, fighting the, fighting this virus. Uh, and so, look, we're doing our part here. We're professionals. Uh, but, but obviously, look, you know, the pandemic is weighs heavily on us as people, uh, you know, and, and, you know, like I, I, I've seen my kids and my wife a lot less than uh, I thought I would uh, when I signed up for this job. My wife may be happy about that, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I definitely miss my family. I'm sure she's kind enough not to say that out loud, though. No, she probably would say that on Facebook. <laughs> now, the last time we had a Democrat elected in, in, in America, the, one of the first things that Barack Obama did was steal our Division of Emergency Management Director. Is there a chance that might happen again? Well, I mean, look, uh, you'd obviously have to ask the, the folks, you know, running the transition. Obviously, it, it, it's an honor to, to be considered uh, for, for a position like that. I think the next FEMA director has some major challenges uh, ahead of him or her. Um, and, and, you know, those challenges aren't just uh, picking up uh, the COVID response and vaccine distribution. It's a 50-state disaster, the first one in U.S. history. 50 states wanting to know where their reimbursement money is. Oh, by the way, in addition to the California and Oregon fires and the Louisiana hurricanes and previous events. And so, you know, the, the FEMA public assistance program is going to need a lot of revamping. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of retooling. We have to understand in disaster management the financing of these cleanups and recoveries and the strain on local governments and the strain on states is not sustainable. Uh, and so we can't be waiting years to get, get our, our money back. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what, whether, whether they consider me, there's a lot of other really good people out there for them to consider. Uh, you know, obviously it'd be, it's an honor to, to, to be, you know, be, be thought about in, the, in that way. Uh, I'm up for the challenge if that's uh, a direction uh, they decide to go. I mean, look, this is an administration that broke the glass ceiling with a woman vice president. I mean, you know, it would be really uh, exciting to be a part of. So what is next in our Florida routine series of disasters? Is wildfire season next, or, or what is the next blip on your radar? Uh, I think aliens will land in March. Uh, <laughs> so that, that will happen. Uh, you know, after that, there'll be a meteor, probably. Uh, you know, ob obviously wildfire season is next on the horizon. And then before you know it, uh, because, you know, the next couple months as we're giving this vaccine, you know, the vaccine distribution will really be ramped up in the end of spring, early summer. Before you know it, hurricane season will be, will be, will be right back at it. So, uh, but yes, wildfire season is, is, is next. The, the, the usual wheel of disasters, that's next on the wheel. Our guest today on the Sunrise Interview has been Jared Moskowitz, who runs the Division of Emergency Management and serves as Florida's unofficial master of disaster. Here's hoping he won't be as busy next year. 
Your calendar of political events begins early with the Florida Board of Medicine meeting online at 8, the Board of Pharmacies meeting by conference call at 8. The Collier County Legislative Delegation meets at 9 in Naples to talk about issues in the 2021 legislative session. Trustees at the University of Florida meet at 9 in Gainesville. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 9 in Tallahassee to analyze highway safety revenues. The Board of Acupuncture meets online at 9. The State Alzheimer's Disease Advisory Committee meets online at 10. The Florida Commission on Ethics meets at 11. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee speaks at 11.30 during a lunch hosted by the Women's Republican Club of Naples. And directors of the Florida Housing Finance Corporation meet in a conference call at 1.30. A Florida woman is charged with cyber-stalking and harassment for allegedly posting a fake profile on a sugar daddy dating site to punish the woman who was involved with her ex-boyfriend. Investigators say 29-year-old Vanessa Huckaba of Rockland Key posted the new girlfriend's name, picture, phone number, and home address in a profile that invited men to stop by for sex and promised there would be fresh methamphetamine. Finally, a Florida man who tried to sue William Shatner to prove he's the son of the Star Trek icon has discovered they are not related after all. Clearwater insurance salesman Peter Sloan, who changed his legal name to Peter Shatner last year, says his biological mother told him in 1984 that his dad was either Shatner or a man she remembered only as Chick. For 36 years, he asked Shatner to take a DNA test, and Shatner declined, saying the Florida man was not his son. Peter was finally able to identify his biological father after his daughter submitted a DNA test, and it turned out to be Benjamin Freeman, who was known to his friends as Chick and died in 2001. Peter Shatner, who is now 63, told the Tampa Bay Times he is disappointed he never got to meet his biological father, and he's going to change his name back to Sloan. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. 